May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. The Hatfields, or at least most of them, lived on the West Virginia side of the Big Sandy River, while the McCoys lived on the Kentucky side. Both families sent their men off to fight for the Confederate Army in the war between the states. Well, all save for one. Asa Harmon McCoy, for some reason unknown to me, fought for the Union Army. And so, not long after Lee surrendered to Grant at Appomattox Courthouse, the Hatfields and the McCoys all returned home, their young men to, to their homes, and, and went about their lives um, in West Virginia and Kentucky, as you might imagine. But everyone sort of viewed Asa Harmon McCoy as somewhat of a traitor. He had fought for the wrong side, and so it was no surprise that one day he was walking down the road and he was shot and killed. People suspected that it was Devil Ants Hatfield, the, the sort of leader of the Hatfield clan, who had shot and killed him. It turns out he was sick in bed and it wasn't him. It was his uncle, Jim Vance, who had killed the boy that day. And this was the first round in what would become a nationally known family feud. In the second event, one of the Hatfields accused the McCoy of stealing a hog, which would have been a, a major theft in those days. Um, and so they took the boy to court. Well, it turns out that the judge was a McCoy and the star witness also a McCoy. And so the Hatfields got no justice. The boy was, uh, was uh, acquitted and was released. Two years later, a star witness who was a McCoy in that trial was shot and killed by a Hatfield. In, a, in an accident then where the, the Hatfield was himself acquitted of murder because the judge had sympathies with him. And so now it's going on. Another event happened when a, when a young Hatfield girl had a dalliance with a McCoy boy and ended up pregnant. And then he left her and married someone else, which was unacceptable in those days. And, and there were other more unfortunate events, and pretty soon it was full-blown war. Family against family. It went on so long that people actually forgot why they were fighting. They were fighting with one another and had no idea why this whole thing had begun. And it wasn't too long ago, I think like 20 or 30 years ago, that members of the Hatfield and McCoy family both met in Pike County, Kentucky, and literally buried the hatchet. I mean, they took a hatchet and literally buried it in the ground to, uh, to say that the, the long feud was finally over. A war between countrymen became a war between families. And that's the way we are, we humans, I mean. We love to be tribal. Oh my goodness, we love to be tribal. We, we find ways to do it. You know, you don't just become a baseball fan. You're an Indians fan. And more importantly, not a Yankees fan. You know my son, my youngest born child, the one I give everything to and I make his life so grand, walks into my house wearing a Yankees hat the other day. I know. I called the lawyer. He's out. First thing I said to him is, why are you wearing that hat? Not, hello, Dietrich, how are you? How are you feeling? How's your day going? None of that. What are you doing? Don't you know who you, whose child you are? What home you are in? Whose food you're eating? Yeah. It goes more than just that. More than just sports. And it's the way we pronounce our words. That tells us what tribe we belong to. 
Um, my tribe in southwest Ohio pronounces words somewhat different than the tribes up here. I had to lear- relearn um, that A-R-E and O-U-R are not pronounced the same way. Where I come from, they are. They're the same word, R and R. Um, but not down there. I was watching this show the other day where this English uh, woman was a spy. And she was talking to her handler about this fellow in her office, and she said, his posh accent is fake. He said, well, how do you know? She said, well, the other day he said opera. And he said, well, how's he supposed to say it? And she said, opera. As if it was somehow different. She just looked at him like, it's the most obvious thing in the world. The American handler said, you British are all snobs. Um, We know how to pronounce our words. And, of course, our politics. Oh, my. Right? Have you ever noticed it always comes down to a two-party system? There are more than two parties. Maybe you're surprised to know that in, in American politics. I mean, you go to uh, elect a president, and a lot of people are shocked to see how many names are actually on there, all these various parties. And it's the same way in most of the world, but it usually comes down to two. It's a choice between one or the other. We're Tories, not Labor. Or Labor, not Tories. And Likud, not Blue and White, or vice versa. And you're like, I don't know these parties. Good. <laughs> and we're Hatfields, not McCoys. We say our, not our. This is how we do things. In the gospel lesson today, we have a famous story, Jesus entering into Jerusalem. It's one of those rare stories that appears in all four gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all tell the story of Jesus entering in, riding on a small animal, a donkey, a colt, and throng of well-wishers that are are there. Some of them have reeds or branches, and and Luke, oddly enough, doesn't have them having anything in his hands, or at least he doesn't mention it. And they're all singing and shouting religious slogans like, um, Hosanna, Lord, save us, or, or peace and glory in the highest heaven, or, um, you know, blessed is he who comes in the Lord. These sort of religious phrases and slogans, and people are doing this. But the event is not spontaneous. It doesn't just happen that Jesus, uh, you know, that all of a sudden everybody's come together and there's like a, a great party that breaks out. That's not it at all. It's a planned event. I think that Jesus had this carefully planned event. He knew there would be a crowd of people because every year at Passover, all the Jews who could do so would make a migration to Jerusalem. They would all be going into the city on that day. And and so he's there with them. To this very day, if you were with a Jewish family celebrating Passover, I don't know, in London or Toronto or Cleveland, the very last thing that would happen at the end of that Seder meal was there would be a toast. And the toast would go like this, next year in Jerusalem. Because this is where you go if you're a faithful Jew. You go to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. And Jesus knew that he was going to plan his event. He even made sure that somebody loaned him a donkey. A lot of people read this passage and think um, that he uh, sort of had this clairvoyance. You know, if you go down to 2nd Street and turn right, there's a, sec- there's a donkey tied up out there. And, and the guy won't fight you over, you know. Um, no, I think he met with a fellow. I need to borrow your donkey. I'm going to ride into the city. And so when somebody came to get it, you know, you'll know to let it go. And that's exactly what happened. He says to his disciples, go into the village, and when you enter it, you'll find a colt that has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you untie it, say, the Lord has need of it. If anyone asks you, that, that um, impersonal pronoun could be if someone asks you. If perchance someone asks you, why? Of course someone might ask them. Everything about this event screams intentionality. Jesus planned this event just like it happened. 
He, he intentionally wanted this to go this way. It's highly symbolic and it's highly provocative. So why the question is why the donkey? You know, it seems, um, it seems a little underwhelming, doesn't it? I mean, if you are going to ride in and make a statement, don't you get a big black shiny stallion? I mean, don't you go in with a, you know, a, a kind of a, a big entrance, a, a grand entrance? A donkey seems a little understated, doesn't it? Like, I mean, like, why not just ride on the back of a golden retriever, you know? Why, why go in on, on a donkey? It seems like it's a little ridiculous. But I, before we answer that question, I get a little ahead of myself. There's another more important question. What's the point? Why is he riding into Jerusalem at all? Why does he get to ride when everybody else, everybody else is walking? And here Jesus is riding into Jerusalem? We have travel narratives throughout all the Gospels. Jesus is going from place to place all the time. And there's only two modes of transportation. Either he's walking or he's in a boat. These are the only ways they get around. They walk or they take a boat. And here he has walked from way up in the north of Galilee down to Jerusalem. You know, going this way and that, probably well over a hundred miles. He gets to the very last bit, the little stretch down into the city, and now suddenly he has to ride? I got up when I was in Jerusalem early in the morning and went from the city, inside the walled city, inside this old 2,000 years, and I, I got up and I left the city and went down the little valley, up the hill on the Mount of Olives. Went to several different sites while I was up there, had a great view, spent some time in prayer, um, had this, you know, great scene of the city of Jerusalem, turned around, went back down the mountain, back into the city, all before breakfast. Jesus gets to Jerusalem. He's on the downward slope. And now suddenly he has to get a ride. Now suddenly, no, you know this, you're so clever. You, I, I try to sneak one by you, but I can't. This is, this is a symbol. This is an act. It's a prophetic act. This is what the prophets always do. Um, the prophet Isaiah, oh, I wouldn't want to be a prophet, walked around naked for three years as a symbol that God was about to strip Israel naked and leave it bare. The prophet Jeremiah took a piece of pottery in the sight of the king and smashed it and said this is what God is about to do to Judah. The prophet Ezekiel was told to give this word of, of judgment to the people and then he's given a scroll, the word of judgment on a scroll, and he's told to eat it. And he says, the amazing thing is it's sweet in my mouth. To say, even a word of judgment, if it's the word of the Lord, is a sweet word. Prophets do these sign acts all the time. Jesus is doing a sign act. He's riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, but there's one difference. The sign is about himself. He's making a proclamation about himself. Why is he writing? He is proclaiming himself Israel's king. It's unambiguous. It comes right from the pages of the Old Testament. Zechariah chapter 9. You heard it this morning. Rejoice, O daughter of Zion, Jerusalem. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Lo, your king comes to you, triumphant and victorious as he, humble and riding on a donkey. 
There we have it. It's the recipe. <laughs> it's the recipe he has to follow. He has to do this because this is what the prophets dictate. But why do the prophets have him on a donkey? Why not on the big shiny black stallion? The answer, of course, is that Yahweh's servant comes in peace. Do you know who rides on the stallion? The warrior. The warrior comes in, the one who comes to fight comes in on the stallion. The one who rides on a donkey is an ancient way of saying, I come in peace. I come not to fight, but to bring peace. And the disciples get it. They start taking off their outer garments and throwing them, making a makeshift red carpet on the, on the ground. They start singing songs of peace. Did you hear it? Peace in heaven. Glory in heaven. But not everyone was happy. No. Not everyone was happy that day. There was this group of uber-religious, uber-traditionalists, the Pharisees, the Bible scholars, who looked at Jesus and they say to Him, Will you stop all this nonsense? Will you tell these people to shut up? There always has to be the opposition party, doesn't there? Always has to be the other tribe. What party are we in? What party are you and I in? Are we happy to see the king who comes in peace? Or do we rather see the, the king on the shiny black stallion, the warrior king? Here's a thought experiment. Which one would we ever see come into town? The king in the, in the motorcade of black SUVs? Or the one who comes riding in the back of a 2007 Ford Fiesta? <laughs> or Festiva or whatever they're called. What do we want to see? Which one? Which one is strength and power? The tank or the tricycle? The battleship or the tugboat? The limousine or the little four-speed hoopty? Which one is a symbol of strength and power? See, the problem the people had with Jesus, especially the Pharisees, wasn't that he was uh, proclaiming himself to be king. The problem was how he was proclaiming himself to be king. The Romans are, got their foot on the Jewish uh, people's neck, and, and somebody needs to get it off of there. And that's the difference. The, the difference between the kingdom that Jesus offered and the kingdom people wanted was extreme. He offered them a kingdom where, where the currency was love and kindness and generosity. Where the currency of hatred and, and selfishness and, and, and mean-spiritedness was gone. He offers a kingdom where God can ruin the heart rather than by statute. A kingdom that's that's about an internal change, about a way of being truly human, of being human the way that God had created us to be. The feud between the Hatfields and the McCoys, it ended after nearly a century. And I think there were people who were literally sad that it was gone. They were genuinely sad that the feud was over. I wonder though, what would have happened if Asa Harmon McCoy hadn't been shot and killed, what might he have become? How might he have contributed to the world? And what if all that hatred and violence and vengeance between those two families hadn't caused so much spilled blood? On this day, 2,000 years ago, a man rides into Jerusalem, proclaims himself to be king, 
but he's a king who brings peace. A king who comes in humility, not in arrogance. One who comes and he offers a kingdom of peace, and he says it will change everything. And it has. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.